All right. Good morning, Sedaris. Happy Easter. As the band said, he is risen. He is risen indeed. These are what the people of God say on a morning like this as we celebrate. I have been thinking about Easter morning for quite some time, probably four weeks in all, just thinking, what do you say on a morning of celebration when we are all as a society grieving and fearful and and wondering what's next? So this, this is what I've come up with. After four weeks of thinking, what I'll share this morning is a message that um, I hope is helpful to you. I hope, to be honest, changes your life for the better. So if you would, would you pray with me as we're about to enter into a time of studying God's word and having him speak to us through it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, though it be uh, virtually over the internet, God. We know that you, by your spirit, can connect us as a family that you can connect your people together by your spirit. And so we worship now, we, we study now, we consider now uh, as one body in one spirit, although scattered throughout the city, for your glory, because of your grace, would you now work in us and move in us and, and show us what's true and real and good and beautiful. God, show us how to celebrate even in the midst of hard, difficult, dark times. We ask now that you would illuminate, bring to life and light uh, our beings from the deepest parts of us so that we might know you more fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was just about four years old, um, a a most glorious moment happened in my life. Um, Actually, new life entered into my family as my younger sister Kaylee was born into the world. And it was a fantastic moment. However, it was a sad moment for me because I was in quarantine. You see, I had chicken pox and I wasn't allowed to see my sister. And so I heard about the life that was coming and the life that was about to be. And and all I wanted to do is be near to it and touch it and hold it and hug my new baby sister. But I couldn't. And for me, that was torture I still remember, I have very few memories of childhood. This is one of the memories that I have. In fact, I called my parents, I said, I have this vivid memory of only being able to see my sister Kaylee through a window. Where did that memory come from? Is that true? And actually, my parents told me that that is true. I was quarantined at my grandmother's house, and when Kaylee was born, my parents brought her over to grandma's house, but they all had to stay in the car, and grandma brought me up to the window of the car, and I could see Kaylee, but I could only see her through the window. I couldn't touch her or hug her or really experience the fullness of, the, of life that she had because I was separated. And um, as I've been thinking about these times that we're in, um, it feels the same way. I've almost got the same taste in my mouth, this taste of, of this doesn't seem quite right, the inability to see uh, up close and personal and to, to touch and to, and to feel um, and to smell those that you love the most. It's a bit like torture, and it's that same taste that I had Why is this so torturous? Why is this so hard for us, for all human beings? Well, I'd like to try to answer that question by uh, looking at this book. This book, the Word of God, um, in it, um, God says he's revealed truths that we could not know unless he'd revealed it. And he's done that by putting thoughts into the minds of men that he knew, and they wrote them down in their own voice with their own hand, but they are indeed the thoughts of God, revealed to us, things that we could not know unless he revealed them to us. So we turn there to answer some of the hardest questions of life because we realize we cannot do this on our own. We cannot understand this experience that we're all going through without some revelation from the God who created us. So so where I want to start is right in the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 2. It's the second chapter of the first book of the Bible, and it recounts the very beginning of God's universe. So in Genesis 2-4, this is what it says, and you should see on your screen the text, so you can read along with me. Uh, Genesis 2, 4 says this, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation of the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown up in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But water would come up out of the ground, and it would water the entire surface of the land. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river that went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers. So this is at the very beginning of God's creation. And I want you to notice two things. There was a tree of life and there was a river of life. Now fast forward quite a long ways. Things didn't go so well for God's people. They chose to turn away from God and, and to eat of the tree that he said not to eat. And, and, and so they lost access to the tree of life and to the river of life. And they were cast out of that garden. And you fast forward, and what you realize is, is God hasn't given up on his people. And you fast forward all the way, and there was promise of, a, of, of somebody who would come, a savior who would come, who would bring this life back. And you get all the way to what we call the New Testament. And you see, in one of the accounts of Jesus' life, this is Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter who lived in uh, the very beginning of uh, what we now call A.D., um, almost 2,000 years ago, he lived... And he said some very strange things. In, flat, in fact, in John chapter 4, John being one of the gospel accounts, one of the accounts, um, the biography of, of Jesus' life, uh, John recalls for us a time when Jesus was talking to a woman at a well. And Jesus said this to her. He said, this is John four fourteen. if you wanted to look it up, says this. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sound familiar? Now, fast forward all the way, we're, doing, we're going through the Bible really quick here, all the way to the very last book. So we read the first book, we read this account in the middle of the book about this character Jesus, and then we get to the very last book of the Bible, which is called the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we have a vision that God gave to one of the disciples of Jesus named John about how in the end of all things, things would come together. So it is a vision, a dream. And this is what the book of Revelation says. First, at the beginning of the book, chapter 2, it says this. This is Jesus speaking in the vision of John. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then if you go all the way to chapter 22, which is at the very end of the book of Revelation, at the very end of your Bible, this is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, is the tree of life, with twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. The Lamb is Jesus. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or no sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So you see where we began and you see where we end. Now, I want to make two observations based on those three or four texts. The first observation is this. The Bible, which is the Christian story of the universe, uh, the Christian story of humanity, the Christian story of life and death, the Bible begins 
and ends with a river of life and a tree of life. Which is to say this. The Christian message, Christian community, the ends of all things that Christians should be about and that Jesus was about is what? Life. Life. Jesus is about life. And more than that, this life that Jesus always spoke about is a life that never ends. Yes, it includes life now, that's important to Jesus, but an honest reading of the collection of all of Scripture, and especially the collection of the stories about Jesus, we have to admit that the central truth and the promise of the Christian Bible is that life, even when it is stopped, even when it is ended now, um, it is only temporary. Death never reigns. Life always reigns. Death is always temporary. And the reason for this, the Bible tells us, is because God has both the power over death and the desire over death. And that's why Easter is the biggest of all Christian celebrations. It is the celebration of Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the, from the dead, his resurrection unto life, a life that is everlasting. So in this moment of the resurrection of Jesus, what we are celebrating is that God's power and God's desire that life would never be cut short, that death is only temporary, that is proved out past the point of theory to the point of fact, that God is a God of life. And so that future imagery that we read about in the book of Revelation, it symbolizes the complete undoing of the curse in the original garden. That pollution of the tree and the river when humans rejected God as God and tried to be their own gods, that pollution Jesus undoes through his death and resurrection. Do you see that? He undoes everything that we have done by going into death and then coming out of death. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning. So you might say it this way. God's original desire and God's everlasting desire or his unrelenting desire is for everlasting life. That's the God of the scriptures. That's the God of Jesus. He's secondarily concerned with us having our best life now because he's primarily concerned with us having everlasting life. Is that making sense? You see what I'm saying here? So this is observation one, and this is why it's so important to understand that God is a God of life, but a God of everlasting life. This will help you to understand, though it's still hard, but it will help you to understand why God would allow suffering in his world now. And it's the only thing that will make sense of why God would allow his son, Jesus, to experience the kind of death and suffering that he experienced. Observation one. Observation two goes like this. Where the first river and the first tree were in a serene, and in terms of human population, a very empty and secluded garden, the second river of life and the second tree of life are found where? Not in a secluded garden, but in a bustling city, full of human beings, full of interaction, full of culture. You have streets and buildings and thrones, but you also have rivers and trees. You see that? The place that we go next is not the same place where it all began. So why is this significant? Well, which imagery do you think is God's promise? The first imagery of the garden or the last imagery of the city? Well, the answer is the last imagery, the 2.0. God is remaking things to something better than they were, and the something better is human connection, human connectivity, okay? Meaning this, that if you want to taste God's promises for his future, future with him, then you have to look at that second image, that second scene in which we are in a city. And when you look at that second scene, what you see is renewed humanity and renewed creation. This is the promise of God. This is the promise of resurrection. So what are the tastes then of that kingdom 
that we're moving towards, what are the tastes of that eternal life that's promised and uh, we're given a vision of? Well, I've picked three parts of that, three tastes, you could say. Um, And what I mean by taste is we can experience part of that now, and when we do, we're experiencing part of what eternal life will be. Those are what I call tastes. So it's a taste of heaven now when physicality and nature collaborate with culture and creativity. You could say human culture and human creativity. So when those two things intersect, you're getting a glimpse, not of a garden, but of a garden city. This is the promise of God, the hope of the restoration, the resurrection of all things. So that's number one. You're also getting a taste of heaven now when human to human connectivity and physical connection and interdependence are at their best. That's a taste of this picture of eternal life that God paints for us. Taste number three. Taste number three, when you experience in this life relationships that are not based on economic exchange or or advantage or uh, utilitarianism, when you experience relationships that are truly based upon mutual respect and enjoyment, you are tasting part of the new creation, part of that vision God gives us of the tree of life, because it's the tree of life that gives us everything that we need for survival and thriving, which is to say God gives us everything that we need in his new creation. So we no longer use one another, but we enjoy one another as fellow human beings created in the image of God. You see that? So these are three tastes of heaven that you can experience now. Now, when you experience these things then, the best forms of them in life, what, what, what I think you're experiencing, I would argue, is what Christians hope for about the life to come. Now, I think also I just uh, I need to say at this moment that we have some false notions of what that heavenly life is like that I think this picture that we've just looked at and Revelation breaks down for us. So eternal life for God's people will not be a secluded getaway on your own private estate with endless privacy and quietness being removed from the bustle of human activity. That is not what the Bible talks about as eternal life. Secondly, everlasting life um, is not an unsolid, non-physical reality. We are not spirits or ghosts in this new creation that God promises. We, like Jesus, will have new, resurrected, and perfected bodies just like our Savior. We will experience death, but we'll also experience resurrection. So everything about life to come will be tangible and physical material. Sometimes people get this wrong. Now, these tastes are that, tastes. So you ask, how close to the real thing is that image or that vision that we have in the book of Revelation? How close to the real thing is the tastes of these things that we get now? The answer is... I don't know, and it would be unwise for me to even speculate. What I do know is that the real thing will be so much better than the things we experience that we'll almost um, forget about the experiences now, except that we'll be like, I remember the taste. Now, I'm not, I hope you're understanding what I'm talking about when I say taste. Um, here, here, this might help you understand. If you've been married or you will ever get married, um, one of the things that you'll do is uh, before your wedding day, you might go and have a tasting. Well, you taste the cake and you taste the appetizers and the food, and then based on those tastings, you'll choose uh, which things that you actually want for your wedding day. Now, sometimes those tastings are extremely helpful. Sometimes they're not as helpful. Some people have a really robust tasting. Other people have almost... Um, no semblance of robustness, <laughs> so to speak. In fact, that's, that's my wife and, and my story. We had to do a virtual tasting. <laughs> we were living in Denver at the time, and our venue was in Seattle, and we weren't able to, to come back and do our tasting. So <laughs> what did we do? We sent my mother-in-law, Sue, to do our tasting. Now, she did a fantastic job, but what did we have to do? We had to trust Sue's tastes, and that she, her taste buds were working properly, and she was giving us proper information about what she had experienced. Now, why do I bring that up? God will give us tastes of eternal life, each and every one of us here 
in our life now. But to be honest, some of us will have better tastes than others. Some of us will have robust tastings. Some, some of us will get to experience more of eternal life now than others. So what does that mean? This is why community is so important. You need to be in relationship with other Christians who are getting tastes of eternal life and people that you can trust that when they say this is how they're experiencing God now, this is how they're experiencing the tastes, you can trust them. If you have to have every taste for yourself in order to move forward towards God, you're going to be disappointed. All of us together, sharing our experiences of God and eternal life even now, our tastings, is how we begin to build a picture of what life will be eternally. And it will be good. It will be good. Now, here's the thing that we have to say. Just as Jesus tasted the fruit of the resurrection, Jesus also tasted the fruit of death. He did that for us. And actually, that's the question that I've been asking myself for the last four weeks. I said, it feels to me what we're experiencing now is a taste of the opposite of eternal life. We're getting a taste of what eternal death might feel like. And even though, and and we have to recognize this, even though we have stories amidst this feeling, stories of bravery and courage and neighborliness, we have to admit, we can't just put lipstick on a pig here, we have to admit that, that, that our vast majority is of something that terrifies us, something that we do not like, that isn't natural to us, that, that, that smells something we don't want any more of. We want it to be over. This, to me at least, is sort of the image or the experience that, that is the opposite of what I imagine eternal life with God to be. And as I've thought about that, um, the imagery of, of a very famous book and, and um, something written by one of my favorite authors has come to mind. It's a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce, uh, oh, I'll say this about C.S. Lewis if you don't know who he is. He's also wrote very famous children's novels called The Chronicles of Narnia. You may have heard of that. Uh, but in his book, The Great Divorce, um, he calls it a dream. He paints a picture of a dream Um, It's a dream meant to stir up the imagination to illuminate um, a future thought about what it might be like to be separated from the goodness of God, to be divorced, if it were, from God, our creator, the God of life. What might that be like? You see, the Bible tells us that in this world right now, God is still all around us. Everyone gets to experience God and the goodness of God and the life of God, regardless of if you acknowledge that God exists. We experience him. But Jesus promises that there's coming a time where those who do not desire life with God will be removed from God, divorced. And this is what Lewis tries to paint. What, what might that be like? You see, in the, in the great divorce, he uses allegory. He's very careful to say, I'm, I'm not saying I think this is what it will be like, But what he's saying is it might be something like this, and he paints a picture, as only Lewis can do, a beautiful but terrifying picture of this idea of heaven and hell. Now, in the the details of this video, I've put a link to the audiobook version of The Great Divorce. It will be the best purchase that you ever make. The actor who speaks... The words of Lewis's book is brilliant, and he does a fabulous job because most of this book is dialogue back and forth between uh, human beings, and, and so he brings the dialogue to life. I highly encourage you can click on that link, purchase it, and, and, and read this book for yourself. So the story, just to explain it, follows an inquisitive man who is himself the narrator who has apparently died, and he heads um, into this place called the Gray Town. The gray town, um, he comes to find out, is actually what the Bible calls hell. And its inhabitants are a peculiar bunch, and he begins to learn more about them, but he also learns about this bus that can take people up to another town, another place. And so he hops on the bus, and he gets to travel from the gray town up to this plain, which is at the base of a mountain range. 
And apparently, in the mountains is where God is, and in the mountains is where God's people come to live once they die. So this man gets to explore both places. That's the context. Now, it is this gray town that has been heavy on my mind recently. So I just want to read you a quick passage from this book to give you uh, some flavor. The context, this is at, very, at the very beginning of the book, just, just page 10 here. And uh, the narrator has come to the great town, and he's begun to experience some of the peculiarities of the town. And he, and he gets on the bus, and as the bus is uh, traveling upwards, and the great town is uh, becoming uh, further and further away in the distance, uh, he can't help but notice, and he begins to talk to the passengers on the bus and ask them the question, why, why does it seem that the population is so scarce? And the passenger, who's been in the great town much longer, says to him, well... Uh, It's not that the population um, is scarce, it's just that people continue to move further and further away from one another. They move further and further away because they can't get along. They can't get along, and in the gray town, all you have to do is think of a new thought, and it becomes true. So if you want a new house, you simply think of a new house, and you have it. And so because people can do that, nothing is keeping them or forcing them to be together, and so they move further and further apart. And so that's where we pick it up as the narrator continues to ask questions about this gray town. So the narrator asks this, and what about the earlier arrivals? That's earlier arrivals to the gray town. I mean, there must be people who came from earth to your town even longer ago, and his friend on the bus says this. That's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live, millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away. Would they get to the bus stop in time if they were set out, the narrator asks? Well, theoretically, but it's a distance of light years, and they wouldn't want to by now, not those old chaps like Tamberlin and Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar or Henry V. Wouldn't want to, the narrator asks. That's right. The nearest of those old ones is Napoleon, we know that because we know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They started out long ago, long before I came, of course, but I was there when they came back. About 15,000 years, our time it took them. They picked out the house. Uh, we've picked out the house by now, just a little pinprick of light and nothing else for millions of miles. But they got there. That's right. He built himself a huge house, all in the empire style, rows of windows flaming with light though it only shows a pinprick from where I live. Did they see Napoleon? That's right. They went up and looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was uh, right there, all right. What was he doing? Walking up and down, up and down all the time, left and right, right and left, never stopping for a moment. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested. And he muttered to himself all the time, it was Salt's fault, it was Ney's fault, it was Josephine's fault, it was the fault of the Russians, it was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop. From the vibrations, I gathered that the bus was still moving, but there was now nothing to be seen from the window, which confined this, nothing but gray void above and below. Then the town will go on spreading indefinitely, I said. That's right, said the intelligent man, unless someone can do something about it. That's the image that's been haunting me. Now, of course, we're in a different place. We're not choosing to be isolated. We're not choosing to be separated. But the result is the same nonetheless. We are separated from one another. We are isolated. We are living these autonomous lives in our own homes, but we're dying a little bit inside. We're craving for those connections that maybe so often we wanted to get away from. Now that we can't have them, we realize how much life they brought. This is so opposite, is it not? The gray town vision of life from that Revelation 22 passage. 
that new Jerusalem, the city of God, with streets and a river of life and a tree of life and people coming from all around to gather and to eat together. So different. And it's a haunting picture. I highly recommend this book. It will stir your soul in a way that will make you wonder, what is it really like to be separated from the God of life? So what does this have to do then with Easter? This sad picture. Well, as much as I'm torn inside, I, I don't think I should sugarcoat this. In part because in these unprecedented times, no one is sugarcoating anything, right? So why should we sugarcoat? The global community, perhaps for the first time, is on the same page, and we're all saying the exact same thing, which is what? You could die any day. You could die any day. In fact, you could die soon. In fact, we will all die soon. If the Bible's timeline of things is true, if there is such thing as everlasting life, then we will all die soon, whether that's from this pandemic, and I have a very close family friend who I thought never would be touched by this, who died just this week. So some of us might die now. Maybe for some it'll be another 80 years, but for all of us, it's soon in the grand scheme of things. And finally, we're talking about it as a world, as a community, as a society. We're not pretending that this isn't happening every day. And if Jesus was telling the truth, even though we all die, we will all experience a resurrection from the dead. But Jesus told us there will be two possible realities that we're resurrected to. One is to everlasting life with God, with this tree of life, with this river of life, with community. The other possibility is resurrection to a life apart from all of that, apart from God, apart from the tree of life, apart from the river of life, apart from the community of God's people. Perhaps that reality is a little like the gray town. And it seems to me that we're finally getting in step with much of the world, much of the developing world, who for them, every single day, they have to ask themselves, if I die today, what will become of me? You may think this seems insensitive at a time like this to be asking this question. Or maybe it's the most sensitive and loving question that you've been asked in a while. It really does depend how you look at it. And if you lean in the direction of an understanding of eternal, everlasting life, then it seems to me, and I hope it feels to you like this is a loving and sensitive question. I'm personally glad that we finally started as a society to be sensitive. Sensitive to the mortality of others, sensitive to the reality that death is happening all around us, sensitive, hopefully, to the fact that we should be putting ourselves in other people's shoes and asking, what are they experiencing? What knowledge do they need? How can I help them find life? And I think this question, if eternity is true, is the question we should also be asking. So I'll ask it for you today. Hopefully you experience this as love. I want to put myself in your shoes and, and ask you a question that I hope you've asked before and answered. I, I want to ask you the question, what would become of you today if you happened to die? How do we answer a question like that? C.S. Lewis, an Oxford scholar, he tries to give us a way to ask that question in the form of an allegorical literary novel. The Bible tries to help us answer that question by telling us the story of Jesus, a man who lived, who died, and who apparently rose from the dead. This is where I go to try to answer this question. This is where Christians go to answer this terrifying question. 
They study and consider the story of Jesus. And the Christian answer to the question, what would become of me if I happened to die today, is informed by and based upon this, and I have to admit, limited historical data. Here is the data. One, this world seems to be created and designed and revealed to us by a higher power. A Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago claimed to be sent by this God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the fulfillment of all the Jewish scripture, all the religious texts from the Jewish people that had predicted his coming, that had predicted that God would save his people by sending a Messiah. This Jewish carpenter apart from any formal training or education, started a rabbinic teaching ministry. He traveled around, gathered huge followings, and thousands of people claimed to see him perform miracles. This Jewish carpenter so agitated the other religious elites and paid professional priests and politicians that they plotted to kill him. They falsely accused him, they charged him with a crime, they convicted him, and they executed him on a Roman cross. This Jewish carpenter had predicted all of these things would happen to him, to his disciples, before they happened to him. But he also predicted that he would rise again from the dead, that this is what had to happen for the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, must go through this in order to save his people. So after being hung to death upon a cross, this Jewish carpenter was buried in a tomb. It was sealed. The Roman guards secured it, and his disciples then abandoned him, leaving him alone, isolated. They denied knowing him. They left him completely alone. The body of this Jewish carpenter lay in the ground over two nights. But then, on the third day, the body of this Jewish carpenter seemed to have disappeared. The once scattered and fearful followers of this Jewish carpenter, those who had run back to their own homes and hid in fear and hiding and isolation, emerged from their hiding and began to proclaim in the public square that they had um, witnessed spoken to, touched, eaten food with the once dead but now alive Jewish carpenter. They claimed that they learned from his teaching for another 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Then this once isolated and fearful group of followers began meeting publicly and started what we now call the church. And they gathered together to do what? To worship Jesus the Jewish carpenter, as if he were God himself. Now, the answer that Christians give for this historical data that explains this phenomenon goes something like this. This Jewish carpenter, whose name was Jesus, was actually who he said he was. He was the son of God. He did come from heaven to earth to live a life of righteousness uh, that we were supposed to live, but we all, all of us, fail to live so that he could do what? So that he could die in our place as our substitute so that the wrath of God due for our sin, the penalty for our rebellion, would be placed on his shoulders, that he would absorb that wrath and quench the wrath of God And then he came back to life to prove that he'd done just that. But he came back to a new kind of life, a life that was everlasting, a kind of human life that was unending. He never died again, and he invited people to join him by simply trusting in him, by trusting that he is who he said he was, that God had sent him, that he was God in the flesh, that he had died for their sins, and that they, because of him, could be saved from their wickedness. This is what the Christians believe. 
and that by coming together and loving unconditionally, because they know that all of them were once wicked and undeserving, but received the grace of God in Jesus, they can now be this new kind of family, this new kind of non-judgmental, loving, uh, powerful community in the world that can change and teach people what life with God is like. All because Jesus has brought them together. Because he tasted death, because he tasted hell, and because he tasted new life after death. This is what Christians believe explains this phenomenon. And so it seems to me that every human being listening now has one of three choices that they could make based upon the Jesus story. If you just look at the evidence, uh, and and I'll just say the evidence in these three ways. Um, The evidence that seems indisputable to me is this, that the claims of Jesus' closest friends are that he died and he rose again, and that life after death is possible because Jesus rose from the dead. Two, These gatherings of followers and worshipers of Jesus, because of this story, have endured every challenge that has persisted in every age. They have persisted and endured through empires and famines and pandemics and persecution. And then finally, the third piece of evidence is that people again and again share their personal experience and testimony of knowing this God through worshiping Jesus And it changes the way that they live, a way that when you meet a true, devoted, faithful follower of Jesus, is a beautiful way of life. Sometimes we see that more now than ever in times like these. So with those three things in mind, I think we can say that the Christian answer to life now and life eternally should be put in the category of plausible, logically coherent, and also and probably most importantly for many of you, existentially consistent, meaning that it explains our experience, our feeling of this world, of our experience of science and art and psychology and sociology. It explains that. It's very consistent with what we, uh, how we live in this world. So, here's the three choices. They go like this. One, The Jesus story and claims of Christianity are a baffling example of coincidence and happenstance, but are not objectively true. And therefore, I choose not to live my life in response to these claims, as this would be a diminishment of life now, as the quality and quantity of life would be limited unnecessarily, therefore it is unwise to devote any time to the exploration of this coincidental evidence. That's choice number one. Choice number two, the Jesus story and claims of Christianity actually do appear to transcend coincidence and happenstance, and they provide a coherent and existentially consistent answer to my observation of the world, but I don't know if they are objectively true, so I will choose to spend significant energy sacrificing time and perhaps foregoing certain ways of living or experiences of pleasure that I once enjoyed so that I might have ample opportunity to test the claims of Christ by experimenting with a life as if the claims of Christ were true. This will cost me something in the short term, say a year of foregoing something that I consider good, but because it has the potential for everlasting gain, If it turns out to be objectively true, it's worth the sacrifice to me. So that's choice number two. Now, choice number three. The Jesus story and the claims of Christianity actually do transcend coincidence and happenstance. And by faith, I trust they are objectively true. And so I choose to be a part of Jesus' family by turning from my sin, turning and trusting God rather than myself or some other God trusting the God of Jesus, trusting Jesus himself as my Lord and Savior. So those are the three choices. Now, how in the world do we make that choice? The answer is, again, we look to Jesus. 
And what we see in Jesus' life is that he predicted that his friends would abandon him. They actually did abandon him. But then Jesus reunited them by his resurrection. Something changed so dramatically at the resurrection of Jesus that what had been torn apart, what had been scattered, the isolation that had been created was reversed in such a dramatic way that it created what we now call the church of Christ. Death scattered and Jesus' resurrection reunited. The church was born. And literally, church in the Greek means the gathering. And as we look to those passages again, and we think about the tree of life, and if we know the scriptures, what we know is that Jesus himself said, I am the tree of life. He called himself the vine. In John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and it withers. They gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So here's how it all comes together. Jesus, by his resurrection, proves that he is the first fruit of everlasting life, the first fruit of the resurrection. And he says, when you connect to me, you will experience the life of this fruit and you yourself will begin to produce fruit because you're attached to the tree of life. And so, if you choose to attach to him, you can taste now what that fruit of eternity will look like. And that fruit is fruit of life and fullness and satisfaction in every season. Even seasons where it feels like there's death, you can experience the tree of life even now. C.S. Lewis famously in The Great Divorce said this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says to them in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it, C.S. Lewis says. All who are in isolation from God choose it. All who are in isolation from the tree of life choose it. And so we all have a choice. Jesus is not a weed. He will not force himself upon you. He gave Adam and Eve a choice in Genesis. He gave his disciples a choice. Some betrayed him. And he's giving you a choice. God will not force the tree of life upon you. But he offers it. He reaches down as the vine and he offers his hand and says, if you connect with me, you will experience life both now and forevermore. And so this is my hope. That in this outbreak, in this season where death feels like it's all around us and isolation feels like it's all around us, my hope is that you would choose the taste that you have in your mouth now to inspire you and motivate you to try to get a taste of the life that Jesus provides. Try to see what that tastes like because you know what this tastes like. Perhaps it's true. Perhaps C.S. Lewis' image is at least partly true. I hope that this isolation and this sense of death and this smell of death is the closest that you ever come to that gray town. I hope that you will explore, that you'll take an expedition to get a better taste, a realer taste, a fuller taste of this life that Jesus promises you by being around his people, by experiencing his word, by, by thinking and talking to God and say, if you're real, show yourself to me. Don't let this taste fade. This is an opportunity for you. We're finally talking about the reality of death. Use this opportunity. Make a decision today to move closer to consideration of life in Jesus. If that's something that you want to do, if you feel like that's something you want to do, we have a link at the bottom of this um, video. You can click on that link. It says, make a decision. And there's lots of things you can do to take a next step 
so that you might begin to taste and experience what this life we're talking about is, this life that we celebrate through the resurrection, this life that you feel in the musicians as they sing about Jesus who is risen. If that's something that you'd like to do, if you want to make a choice today, you can make a choice. You don't have to wait. Jesus is waiting for you. The tree is available. Take of it and eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we all have fallen short of the plan that you had for our life. We know that we all have sinned and rebelled against your way in our life. God, we know that we've all chosen not to eat of the fruit of the tree that Jesus provides, but eat of other fruits that looked good to our eye. God, and I know that many of my friends now want to taste the fruit that you offer in Christ, the fruit of the resurrection, the fruit of all that is good and all that is right and all that is beautiful. God, if there's anyone out there right now who wants to taste of that fruit, would you just make it so obvious to them that they can do that right now, that they don't have to wait, that they don't have to earn anything, that there's nothing they can do that can make them worthy of the fruit. It's just fruit that you give them, the fruit of real life and everlasting life and life to the full. God, just help them. Help them right now by your spirit to take and eat of that fruit simply by asking you to become a part of their life. God, we thank you for this opportunity. God, we pray for the hearts that are breaking, for the families that are being divided. God, that they would know about the resurrection and that they would know that there is reunion in Christ Jesus, the Lord and Savior of all who turn and trust in him by faith. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.